Well, brothers and sisters, please stand and hear the Lord call us to worship this morning from Psalm 148. Be reading verses 1 through 5 and verses 11 through 13. Hear the word of our God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. This is what we are here to do this morning, to praise the name of our God. So we're going to sing now hymn number 110, Hallelujah, Praise Jehovah. Yeah. 
and amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on our worship service. Our Father and our God, you tell us in your word that the heavens declare your glory and that the sky above us proclaims your handiwork. And Father, this is true because you are the creator of all things, and so all things reflect your glory. For all of creation reflects the glory of you, the designer and the creator and the author of all life. And Father, if this is true, then this means that what we, your people, have gathered together to do on this Lord's Day is really to join with all of creation to proclaim your praise and to live out our created purpose as the pinnacle of your creation and as those created in your own image, which is to glorify your great name and to bring glory to you, our God and our maker. And Father, we pray that you would help us to do this very thing this morning faithfully and wholeheartedly in the joy that we have in Christ. For Father, we know that we do this so imperfectly that our worship of you is not what it should be. And so, our Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that you would help us to come with the right attitude, that we would not come simply to give you lip service or to go through a mindless ritual, but that we would come before you, our God, to offer our very selves to you in worship, everything that we have and everything that we are, that we would come with the desire to offer our very bodies to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in your sight. And Father, as we do this, we pray that you would use every part of our worship service this morning to lead us and to help us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we would be able to discern what your will is for us, what is good and what is acceptable and what is pleasing in your sight. For Father, we exist to bring you glory and you are worthy to be praised for you are our creator and our redeemer and our king. Hear this, our prayer, and help us to worship you now. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm going to invite you to turn to the inside of your bulletin, the inside cover, and you should see printed there the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, question 4 through 8. We're going to use these questions this morning to confess our faith together. I will read the questions, and then we'll confess the answers together. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this summary in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Did God create people so wicked and perverse? No, God created them good and in his own image. That is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that they might truly know their creator, love him with all their heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. And where does this corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature 
that we are born sinners, corrupt from conception on. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Amen. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, we come now to the part of our worship service where we take the time to confess our sins to the Lord. We are all sinners, and we continue to break God's law despite his grace to us, and it is right for us to come before God and confess our sins to him. So as we do this, I want you to hear God's standard of righteousness this morning from the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer and confess our sins to him. Our Father, your word tells us as we have just read that we need to abstain from the passions of our flesh, which wage war against our souls. And Father, we know that this means that we need to wage war against our flesh, even as it is waging war against us. And Father, you tell us to do this, to fight our flesh and to keep our conduct honorable so that people will see our good deeds and our way of life, and that as a result of this, As a result of our obedience, they will also desire to glorify you, our God and our King. And Father, as we come before you now to confess our sins to you, we acknowledge and confess that we have not always taken up this fight as you call us to do. That in so many ways, even in this past week, we have not resisted the passions of our flesh as we should. For Father, not only do we sin against you in so many ways, and not only do we fall into all kinds of temptations, but sadly, Father, we so often do this willingly. We feed our flesh, and we indulge our flesh, and we embrace our flesh rather than fighting against it, rather than seeking to abstain from its passions. And Father, the saddest thing about this is that when we live like this, when we indulge our flesh and follow its passions, we don't lead others to glorify your name. When we live like this, we don't glorify you by our actions, and because of this, we don't lead others to glorify you either. And Father, this is why we come before you once again to plead for your mercy, to ask in the name of Jesus for you to forgive us and to cleanse us and to heal us as only you can. For, Father, it is our desire to glorify your name and to walk by the Spirit and to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so, our Father, we pray that you would forgive us for all of our sin, which we know is great, that you would forgive us for all of the ways that we have not abstained from the passions of our flesh. And we pray that you would fill us with your Spirit so that we would hate our sin and would turn from it and so that we would bear spiritual fruit and not the fruit of the flesh. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, having confessed our sins, I want you to hear these words of assurance from Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and, is who, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Brothers and sisters, this is what God does for each one of us when we come to him in faith in Jesus Christ. We acknowledge our sin in God readily forgives the iniquity of our sin. He readily forgives our sin through Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for his grace. Amen. 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 Well, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to sing again this time hymn number 551, How Blessed is He Who's Trespassed.
Amen. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, let's go once again to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come before you in worship this morning, and as we come before you again in prayer, we thank you this morning for the church of Jesus Christ, the church that you describe in your word as the household of God and as a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And Father, we thank you for making us a part of this church, for making us a part of your church, the church of the living God. We thank you for making us members of your household and of your family built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the foundation of your word with Jesus Christ himself serving as the cornerstone. Father, we thank you for this church, the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you for making us a part of this church and for the promise of your word that in Christ we are actually being built together to be a holy temple and a dwelling place, the very place where you, our God, promise that you will dwell with us, your people, by your spirit. And Father, as we thank you this morning for the church and for making us a part of the church, we certainly thank you for our congregation here in Franklin Square Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us for so many years and for the way that you continue to sustain us and to lead us and to build us up in Christ week by week. We thank you for the varied and manifold gifts that you have given to the members of our church and for the way that each member contributes to the life and to the unity and to the worship and to the joy and to the witness of the body of Christ. And Father, our prayer is that you would make us fruitful in making disciples of Jesus Christ. For Father, we pray this morning that where we are weak, that you would strengthen us and make us strong. And that where we are unfruitful, that you would transform us and make us fruitful. And that where we are not living as the church that you call us to be, that you would lead us to repentance and to do the works that we did at first so that we might be a church that truly glorifies your name and that truly reflects the beauty of Christ and the wisdom of Christ to the glory of Christ. And Father, not only do we thank you this morning for our congregation here in Franklin Square, we also thank you for the regional church and for the congregations in our presbytery, which you continue to sustain and to direct and to lead by your grace. And Father, we especially thank you this morning for our newest congregation, the Haven, and for the decision that was made at the Presbytery meeting yesterday to accept the petition of the members of the Haven that they be organized as a new and separate congregation of the OPC, no longer to be a mission work under the jurisdiction of another church, but to be their own congregation with their own pastor and with their own church officers. Father, we thank you for this significant step, and we pray now for your blessing on this new church. We pray that you would work in them what is pleasing in your sight, that you would bless them with unity and with brotherly love and with a true zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ, that the more that they learn of Christ, the more they would want to serve Christ and to share Christ with those who do not know you. And Father, we pray that by this, that you would in the weeks and months ahead add to their number that they would go from being but a few to being many who are united to Christ and who are united to one another as his body and who are committed to your worship and to following your word. 
And Father, we pray this for all of our churches, all of the churches in our presbytery and for our church here in Franklin Square as well, that we would be faithful in our worship and faithful in our witnessing and faithful to your word and all to your glory and to the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. Father, we thank you again for the church of Jesus Christ and for making us a part of your church, a part of your household and your temple. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be the church that you call us to be. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we come now to the part of our worship service where we get to hear the Lord speak to us through his word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. I encourage you to turn there in your Bible. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Again, hear the word of our God. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Again, this is the word of our God. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm also continuing my sermon series this morning in the gospel of Mark, so I'm going to invite you as well to turn now to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 30 through 32.
Again, Mark 9, verses 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Brothers and sisters, let's go once again to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we thank you once again for giving us the opportunity to gather together in person this morning to worship your great name. Father, it is our wish that these restrictions and regulations would be lifted, that we wouldn't have to gather in this way, wear masks as we do, but Father, we do thank and praise you that we can gather together to worship your great name, for Father, we know that this is what we need to do more than anything else. And Father, we thank you as well that as part of this, we can come together to hear your word proclaimed. And Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, for Father, this is what we need. We need to hear your voice. Father, we hear so many voices in our world. We're bombarded by words every day. But Father, they're not your word. They are not true words. They are not pure words. They are not trustworthy words. For Father, the only trustworthy word is the word that you have spoken to us. And Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, for this is what we need to hear This is what we need to believe. This is what we need to receive. This is what we need to act upon. And Father, I pray that you would use me as your servant in this. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, verses that we're looking at this morning, Jesus tells his disciples again about his impending death and resurrection. This is the second time that Jesus had, has done this. He did this in Mark chapter 8, and then he's doing this again now here in Mark chapter 9. And I want to read these verses to you again as I begin my sermon this morning. I want you to listen again to what the scripture says. God's word says this, that they, that's Jesus and his disciples, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, that's Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a few things that we need to notice here immediately. Before we even get into the question that I want us to think about this morning, and I'm going to tell you what that question is in a minute, but before we get into that, I want you to notice here a few things that are taking place in these verses. The first thing that's important to understand is that Jesus is beginning here his march or his path to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. It's important to understand something of the geography of the events that are taking place in Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, and this is in the northernmost part of Israel. In fact, you could almost not go any more northern in Israel and still remain within the territory of Israel. And this is where Peter made his great confession, you may remember, that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? 
And this is where Jesus, Peter confessed Jesus was the Christ. This was in Caesarea Philippi. But now Jesus is moving south. We're told here that he's actually passing through Galilee. And Jesus is going to continue to move south because Jesus is heading to Jerusalem where he is going to be crucified. Jesus is following this path from here on out to his own suffering and to his own death and to his own cross. And brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus wants his disciples to know. This is the second thing that we need to notice here, that Jesus' focus in these verses is on his disciples. He's teaching his disciples here. He's revealing things to them. He's not broadcasting this to the crowds. In fact, Jesus, we're told here, doesn't even want the crowds to know where he is because he wants to have time with his disciples. He wants to speak with them about important matters, and particularly, he wants to share with them what he came to do. And this brings me to the third thing that we need to notice here. We need to notice that the message that Jesus reveals to his disciples here is really focused on two important events that Jesus says are going to take place, namely his death and his resurrection. Jesus speaks of his death when he says that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and that they will kill him. And Jesus speaks about his resurrection when he says that when he's killed, after three days, he will rise again. And Brothers and sisters, what's important to understand about this, what Jesus is revealing to his disciples regarding his death and resurrection, is that these two events are inseparable and that they are at the heart of what Jesus came to do. This was his purpose, this purpose behind everything that he was doing. His purpose was to come and to be crucified and to rise again. This is what everything that Jesus was doing was leading up to. Everything that we've been studying about Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Mark now for nine chapters is leading up to this, Jesus' own death and resurrection. This is what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand. And this is why Jesus says these words, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And brothers and sisters, I want to just stop for a minute and have you think about those words. Think about them in the context of everything that we've been studying in Mark's gospel. Think about them in the context of what we've been seeing here, even in Mark 8 and Mark 9. Think about them as if you were one of Jesus' disciples and Jesus was saying these words to you. This is Jesus speaking here. This is the one that we're told at the beginning of Mark's gospel, come and said that the the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the one that has been healing the sick, not just a few sick people here and there, multitudes of sick people, people being healed just by touching the robe of Jesus. This is the one who has been casting out demons. This is the one that Peter confessed is the Christ. This is the one whose eternal glory was revealed to his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. Brothers and sisters, you can't go through the gospel like this and get to the point where we are in Mark chapter 9 without realizing that Jesus cannot be a mere man. He has to be God. No mere man could do the things that Jesus is doing. And yet think of what Jesus says to his disciples here. They have witnessed all of this. And yet Jesus, the God-man, the one whose glory was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, now says to him that he's going to be killed. 
He's following this path, the path to Jerusalem, where he will suffer and where he will be crucified and where he will die. And brothers and sisters, we're told in verse 32 here that disciples simply don't understand this. It's inconceivable to them that this could happen to Jesus. It's inconceivable that the Messiah, the one that God had promised, could be killed in this way. They can't make sense out of these words. They don't understand why Jesus would be speaking to them in this way, and we're even told that they're afraid even to ask Jesus about this. And brothers and sisters, I say this to you this morning. The reason I decided to preach on just these three verses and not take a larger section of Mark's gospel is because I'm concerned that what is true of the disciples here may also, in some sense, be true of us. That we may not have a full understanding of why Jesus had to follow this path, a full understanding of why the death and resurrection of Jesus was so necessary. This is the question that I want you to think about this morning. Why did Jesus have to follow this path? Why did Jesus have to be delivered into the hands of men? Why did he have to be killed? And why did he have to rise after three days? Think about that. How would you answer that question? If somebody asked you that question, could you give them an answer to that question? Why did Jesus have to follow that, this path? Well, years ago, I had the opportunity to ask that very sort of question to a youth group that I was helping to lead. I was helping another man to lead a youth group at a church we were attending, and uh, he couldn't be there one week, so I had opportunity to uh, lead the Bible study with the kids, and so I thought I'd ask them a series of questions, and I think I began with a question like this, what is the Bible all about? These were kids that had, uh, many of them, grown up in the church, a part of Christian families. And so I thought I'd ask them a series of questions. What is the Bible all about, I ask? And I think one of the young men, he said, uh, Jesus. Can't go wrong, right, if you answer Jesus, right? <laughs> so I said, well, okay, the Bible's about Jesus, but what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? And then I think uh, one of the kids answered something like this. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus had to die for us. Well, that's a pretty good answer, right? And then I asked them the question that seemed to stump them. I wasn't trying to stump them, but I said, but why did Jesus have to die for us? And as I said, that's when I got a lot of blank stares. They didn't seem to be able to answer that question. But why? Why did Jesus have to follow this path? that we're told about here in Mark chapter 9. Brothers and sisters, this is a vitally important question, and this is why I think it's worthwhile for us to sort of stop at this point in Mark's gospel and think about this question together. Why did Jesus have to follow this path? Why did he have to be delivered into the hands of men? Why did he have to be killed and after three days rise? And I'll say this to you, this is not actually a simple question to answer, and so we shouldn't expect a simple answer there are actually a, a number of ways that you can look at this question, which means that there's really more than one answer to it. And I actually want us to consider two answers to this question, with our, which are both vitally important for us to understand. One of these answers is really rooted in God and understanding who he is. And this is really where we need to begin. And the other answer is really rooted in us and understanding who we are. 
So one answer is rooted in God, and one answer is rooted in us. And as I said, we need to begin by thinking about God. If we're to answer this question, well, why did Jesus have to follow this path? We need to begin with God and with the character of God. You could put it this way. I could put it this way this morning. I would say this. If we want to trace the reason for Christ's work, the reason for his death and resurrection, the reason that he has to follow this path, if we want to trace this back to its ultimate source, that source is found in God himself. Let me say that again. If we want to trace the reason for all of Christ's work, the reason why he had to come and die and rise again, if we want to trace that back to its ultimate source, that source is found in God himself. It's found, brothers and sisters, in the love of God and in the will of God, what some have referred to as the sovereign love of God for us, his people. You see, it's clear from what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 9 that all of this was God's plan. It was God's plan that Jesus was to be delivered in this way. It was God's plan that he would be killed by the hands of men. And it was God's plan that after three days he would rise again. You see this in verse 31 where Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be delivered, he says. Some translations use the word betrayed instead of delivered, but I agree with R.C. Stroll that the better translation here is delivered or handed over. And I think this is the better translation because the word Jesus uses here is in the present tense. Literally, what Jesus says here is not that he's going to be delivered. He says he is delivered. It's already happening, Jesus is saying. And he isn't already being betrayed. That would happen later with Judas. But there's a sense in which Jesus is already being delivered here. He's already following this path. He's already heading to Jerusalem where he will suffer for us, his people. But brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to think about. The question we don't tend to think about when we read this verse and we hear that Jesus is going to be delivered into the hands of men is this. Who's doing the delivering? Who's doing this? The the word literally means that Jesus is handed over as if someone takes him and hands him over. Who's doing the handing over? The answer to that question, the only answer that makes sense is that this is being done by God the Father. Nobody else could do this. Jesus is literally being handed over here by his Father into the hands of men. This is what's being revealed here. It's this transaction taking place where God the Son is being handed over to suffer in this way by God the Father. And brothers and sisters, the point here, the point that Jesus wanted his disciples to understand was that this was the plan of God. This was the will of God from the beginning. This is why Jesus is following this path. This is why he's telling his disciples that this is going to happen to him. Because Jesus was simply following the plan of God. He was doing the will of God, his Father. But brothers and sisters, not only was this the plan of God from the beginning, what we also need to understand is that this plan of God was rooted in the love of God for us, his people. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Think about that. God so loved the world. He so loved a sinful world, sinners like you and me, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Brothers and sisters, if we ask the question, why would God hand his own son over in this way to be killed? Why would God hand his son over to follow this path that Jesus tells us about in Mark chapter 9? The answer is because God so loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's so important for you to grasp this. Think about it. God did not have to do this. This was not required of him. He didn't have to save us. He didn't have to redeem us. He didn't have to send his son to suffer for us. And yet this is exactly what God did. And brothers and sisters, what this means is that God did this freely. His arm was not twisted. He did this out of his own good pleasure. He did this as an act of his goodness. He did this as part of his electing love for us, his people. Romans 5 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, this is how great the love of God for us is. The scripture says that when we were even God's enemies, that God did this for us. Brothers and sisters, this means that if we ask the question, the question we're thinking about this morning, why in the world is Jesus here, the eternal son of God, the one whose glory was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, why is he following this path? Why is he telling his disciples that this is what he came to do? The ultimate answer is found in God. God chose to do this for us and not because of anything in us, not because we deserved it, not because of anything that we had done, but because God so loved us, because of the sovereign love of our God for us, his people. That's the ultimate answer. That's the ultimate source, you see, of the reason for why Jesus is following this path here in Mark chapter 9. But brothers and sisters, there's another way that we need to look at this question as well, this question we're considering this morning. Why is Jesus following this path? As I said earlier, there's really two answers to this that I want us to consider this morning. The first one, as we've seen, is, is rooted in God. This was the plan of the eternal God, a, a plan rooted in God's love for us, his people. But there's a second answer to this question as well that I said is rooted in us. It comes in understanding who we are, in understanding our own condition as fallen human beings. You see, God may have determined to save us, as we've already seen, and God may have determined to do this out of his own good pleasure for us, out of his love for us, which, of course, should never cease to amaze us as his people. But, brothers and sisters, we could ask this question, why did God have to save us in this way? Why did it involve Jesus doing this? Why did Jesus have to follow this path? And the answer to that question really comes in understanding our condition as fallen human beings and the, the problems that we have as sinners. Because God sent his son to be the solution to our problems. That's what's remarkable. God sent his son to meet our needs. This is why Jesus is following this path. And there's this connection between the path that Jesus is following and the problems that we have as sinful human beings. And you see, if we're to understand the reason why Jesus had to do what Mark 9 tells us that he came to do, then we need to think about our problems, the problems that Jesus came to solve. We need to think about the needs that we have that Jesus came to fill. 
And brothers and sisters, there's a number of these, a number of these that we need to think about. It's not as if we just have one problem as fallen human beings, one need that we have. You might say, well, our problem is that we're sinners. And of course, that is certainly true. But what we need to understand is that there are different aspects to this reality of our sinful condition. And to understand the work of Christ, you see, we need to understand these different aspects, the different problems and needs that we have. And the first problem that we have, or we could put it this way, the first need that we have, which is really the most foundational need that we have as sinners, is that we need a new heart. Brothers and sisters, as I said, this is the most foundational or the most fundamental need that we have. We need a new heart. We could say that we need a heart transplant. When I say this, of course, when I'm talking about the heart, I'm not talking about the organ in your body that pumps your blood. When the Bible speaks about the heart, it uses this language to talk about the core of your being, the core of who you are. The heart in scriptural language includes your will, your desires, even the thoughts of your mind. So that according to the Bible, the heart is really the command center, the control center of who you are. And what this means is that everything that you do and everything that you think and everything that you say flows from your heart And it also means that it's the state of your heart that will determine the outcome of your life. It's the state of your heart that will determine the fruit that your life will bear. And what the Bible teaches is that the heart of man is corrupt. The heart of man is rebellious. This is our most fundamental problem. We don't want to serve God, our creator. We don't want to obey him. We don't want to live under his rule. We love darkness instead of light. You see, we should love God and we should hate sin. This is what we were created for. But instead, we love sin and we hate God. This is the state of our heart. This is the heart that we inherited from Adam, our first father, and because of his sin. And brothers and sisters, the Bible goes so far as to describe our fallen heart as a heart of stone. It's dead. It's hardened against God. It doesn't want to submit to God. It doesn't even want to know God. And this is why we behave the way we do. This is why we do wrong things. This is why we commit so many sins, because the heart is dead, and the heart is hardened against God. And you see this in what Jesus said earlier in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 7. Jesus said this, for from within, out of the heart of man, he said, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, Jesus says, these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Think about that. What is Jesus saying here? Why do we do the things that we do? Why is there so much evil in the world? And why do we do even the things that we know are wrong? Jesus says it's because of the state of our heart. Our heart is corrupt. Our heart is rebellious. And this is what I hope that you understand, that you can try to change your behavior. You can try to be religious. You can try to be good. But if what Jesus says is true here, if what scripture says is true, it doesn't work. Because the problem you have is not a behavior problem. The problem is a heart problem. And no matter how much you try to dress up the outside of yourself, no matter how much you try to make yourself look like a good person, no matter how much you try to change your behavior, you can't if your heart is corrupt 
and rebellious against God. And God sees the heart. We all have a heart that is turned away from the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is our most fundamental problem. We need a new heart. We need a heart transplant. But this is not our only problem. This is not our only need. It may be our most foundational need, but it's not our only need. The first thing we need, as I said, is we need a new heart. But the second problem we have is that we need a new record, we could say, or a new righteousness. And what I mean by that is that we all have a guilty past. We all have this record of the wrongs that we have done that clings to us that we can't escape. You could think about it this way. It's as if we all have a police record what they call a rap sheet. You've probably heard of this. That when somebody's arrested, right, what do the police do? They look up on the computer to see if that person has committed any of their crimes. And they, if they have a file on that person, they have a whole record of all of the wrongs that that person has done that they can see. And brothers and sisters, it's as if each of us has this sort of record of the crimes and the sins that we have committed against God and against his law. And it's not as if our record is just a short one. It's it's not as if we just have a few things on our record that if we could just eliminate these few things, everything would be all right. This record we have is a mile long. Lord, it's listed. It's got all our sins listed on it. Sins we've committed over and over and over again against God and against his law. And because of this, you see, we're all guilty before God. He's our ruler and judge. We're guilty under his law. And this means that if we were to come into his courtroom, you see, he's the judge. And if we're to come into his courtroom, as we will do one day, you see, we would all be condemned. Because this record of the wrongs that we have done stands against us. Psalm 130 makes this clear. The psalmist says this, if you, O Lord, he says, kept a record of sins, O Lord, he says, who could stand? Think about it. If God kept a record of everything that you ever did, all the wrongs that you did, what hope would you ever have to stand before him, to come into his courtroom and be acquitted? You see, this is our problem. God does have a record of our sins. He knows everything that we have ever done. And we are guilty under his law. And the punishment, you see, that we deserve for our crimes is actually death according to God's law. This is what the Bible teaches very clearly, that the wages of sin is death. And brothers and sisters, this should be a warning to us. Think about it. Even in our human courts, even in our courts in our nation here, if somebody is guilty, if they come into that court and they are guilty, the judge is not supposed to acquit them and just let them go free. The judge has to uphold justice. He's supposed to pronounce the sentence on them that their crime deserves. And if this is true even of our human courts, how much more is it true when it comes to God, who is a God not just of love, but a God of true justice? Brothers and sisters, what this means is that the only way that you can hope to be acquitted, the the only way your verdict could be changed in your case so that you are not guilty instead of being guilty is if somehow your guilt could be removed. If somehow you could come into God's courtroom and instead of presenting this mile-long record of all of your sins, you could present a record of all of your righteous deeds with no sins whatsoever. That's the only way that you could be acquitted in God's courtroom. What this means is that we need a new record. We don't just need a new heart. 
We need a new record of righteousness. We need some sort of righteousness that we don't have. But there's a third problem, a third need we have. We not only need a new heart, we not only need a new record of righteousness, we also need a new holiness. You see, our problem is not just that we're guilty, not just that we have a guilty past. The problem is that we've got a sinful present. That as fallen human beings, we continue to live destructive, unholy, and sinful lives. You see, we don't just need our guilt removed. We need to live a holy life. We need to be conformed into God's own likeness. We need to be holy as God is holy. This is actually what God's word says that he requires of us. Hebrews 12 and verse 14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And in 1 Peter 1, Peter quotes from the Old Testament when he says this, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Brothers and sisters, this is what God requires of us. This is what we need if we're to see God. We need holiness. We don't just need a new heart. We don't just need a righteous record. We also need holiness that we don't exhibit and that we don't have. We need to be conformed into God's own likeness. And what I hope you understand is this, that because of these three problems that we have, we are not only excluded from the kingdom of God, from God's kingdom, we are also the objects of God's wrath and his just judgment. For brothers and sisters, we willfully reject God's authority. We willfully ignore and disobey his law. And think about it. We are foolish to think that God will do nothing about it. This is how so many people think in the world, that they can just transgress God's law and ignore God's word, and that God will be, do nothing about it. But brothers and sisters, we are foolish to think this way, and God's word tells us otherwise. It may not be popular for me to stand up here this morning and say it to you, and you may not want to hear it, and it may not be popular for you to hear it, but hell is real. It is real. And Jesus spoke about it more than anybody else. And he said that it's a place of torment and agony beyond anything that we can imagine, where the eternal punishment of God is going to fall on all of those who have a rebellious heart and a guilty past and an unholy life. This is our condition. We not only have these three problems, but because of these three problems, we are excluded from the kingdom of God. And we are under the wrath of God. And we are on our way to hell, the place of eternal punishment. But brothers and sisters, this is what is truly amazing. It's truly amazing here. And even what Jesus says to his disciples here in Mark chapter 9, what he reveals about this path that he is on to Jerusalem, to the place where he will die and then rise again. This is what is amazing, that even though we have rebelled against God in this way, even though we are guilty before him, and even though we continue to live unholy lives, that God in his love and grace sent Jesus, his only son, his eternal son, to be the remedy and solution for all of our problems. Brothers and sisters, all of them, not just one of them. If Jesus came and solved one of these problems without the other ones, it wouldn't do us any good. We would still be excluded from the kingdom of God and under the wrath of God. Jesus comes to solve all of our problems. And this is why Jesus had to follow this path that he tells us about in Mark chapter 9. Because it's only through the death and the resurrection of Jesus that our problems can be solved and our needs can be met. 
And brothers and sisters, you may not have thought about it this way, but this is actually why Jesus takes on our flesh. He's God, the eternal God. This is why he comes to us and becomes like us, because he actually comes to represent us. He comes to be the second Adam to undo what our first representative, the first Adam, did. Jesus comes to solve all of our problems by representing us in his death and in his resurrection. And I want you to just think for a minute with me what Jesus does for us through these two events that he's telling us about here in Mark chapter 9. Think about it. Through the death of Jesus, the Bible tells us that our old man is crucified. Our rebellious heart that's in love with sin is actually put to death by the death of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that's not all. Through the death of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. This mile-long record we have of all the wrongs that we have done before God, that record is wiped clean by the death of Jesus because Jesus took our guilt upon himself and paid for it. He took the punishment that we deserved and satisfied the wrath of God in our place. And through the death of Jesus, we begin to be set free from our unholy and polluted life, set free from the power that sin has over us. But brothers and sisters, it gets even better than that. For Jesus didn't just die in our place. Jesus rose to new life in our place as well. And through the resurrection of Jesus, you see, we're given a new heart and a new life. We are raised with Christ, the scripture says, from death to life. This is what God promised in Ezekiel chapter 36 that Jesus fulfilled, that he would take away our heart of stone, it says, this hardened heart against God, and that he would give us a heart of flesh, a heart that's alive to do the will of God. This is what Christ accomplishes in his resurrection. We are given a new heart. But through the resurrection of Jesus, we are also given a new righteous record The Bible says we are actually clothed in Christ's own righteousness. Think about this, so that we are accepted before God as if we were God's own son, as if we had obeyed just as Jesus obeyed. And through Christ's resurrection, we are truly set free from the power of sin. Christ gives us his own spirit to live in us, the spirit of holiness, whose whole commitment is to conform us into the likeness of Jesus. Think about this. Every problem, not just part of our problem, every problem that we have is remedied in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Every need that we have is provided for in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this was the plan of God from the very beginning, rooted in the love of God, brought to fruition by the grace of God. This is why Jesus, in Mark chapter 9, is telling his disciples that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men, that they will kill him, and that when, he kill, when they kill him after three days, he will rise. This is the only way that we could be saved, saved from the wrath of God, made right with God. Because what we need is a new heart. We need a new righteousness. We need a new holiness. And this is what God has freely provided for us in his son in the work of Jesus Christ for us. 
And brothers and sisters, this is what I hope you understand, that these three problems that God has solved in Jesus Christ, these coincide with three great doctrines that we find in Scripture, the doctrine of regeneration and the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. I hope you're familiar in some sense with these three great doctrines, but they coincide exactly with the three problems we have and the three solutions that God has provided in Jesus Christ. You see, in regeneration, what happens? God gives us a new heart. We get the very heart and the life of Jesus. Think about what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's regeneration. It's the life of Christ now living in us. In scripture, regeneration is described in a few different ways. It's described as a new birth, for instance, in the the passage we read this morning in John chapter 3. What does Jesus say? Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a man, he says, is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Regeneration is also described in in scripture as a resurrection. We're told this in Ephesians 2, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that God who is rich in mercy, the scripture says, out of his great love for us, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. God does a resurrection in us. This is what regeneration is. It's a new birth. It's a resurrection. This is what God does for us in Jesus Christ. This is regeneration. And without this new birth, without this new heart, without this new life that only Jesus can give you, brothers and sisters, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But as I said before, What Christ does here is even greater than this through his death and resurrection. The Bible doesn't just tell us about regeneration. It tells us also about justification. What's going on in justification? Well, in justification, God forgives all of our sin and accepts us as righteous in his sight, not based on anything in us, but solely based on the righteousness of Jesus. Justification is where this great transfer takes place, where God credits all of our sin to Jesus. He puts all of our guilt upon him and treats Jesus as if he had committed all of our sin and punishes him in our place. And at the same time, what does he do? He credits the righteousness of Jesus to us. It's as if our record of all of our sins a mile long It's erased, and that is put on Jesus' record. And Jesus' record of perfect righteousness is put over onto our record. This is what God does for us in justification. He treats us then as if we had never sinned like the Lord Jesus Christ and accepts us as righteous in his sight. And then there's sanctification. What is sanctification all about? This is where God actually makes us holy. He fills us with his own spirit so that we will walk in his ways and conforms us to the likeness of his own son. Brothers and sisters, this is what God does in saving us through faith in Jesus. He solves all of our problems by uniting us to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection so that what Jesus accomplished becomes ours. We are regenerated. We are given a new heart. We are justified, we are given a new righteousness, and we are sanctified, we are given a new holiness. And brothers and sisters, this is how much God loved us. He sent his own son, his only son, to provide all of this for us by suffering in our place, by following the very path that Jesus 
tells his disciples about here in Mark chapter 9 that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men, that they're going to kill him, and that when they kill him after three days, he will rise. It's through that path that Jesus provides all of this for us. Think about that regeneration, justification, sanctification, everything we need to enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to think about for a minute before we close. We've thought about the three problems that we've had. We've thought about the three solutions that Jesus provided and the connection to these three great doctrines regeneration, justification, and sanctification. But I want you to think about this for a minute. I think we tend in the church to emphasize justification and to de-emphasize regeneration. We tend to focus on justification and to forget sometimes about the importance of regeneration. What I mean by that is we've tended to emphasize our need of forgiveness and to think about salvation solely in terms of forgiveness but we've tended to de-emphasize our need for this new heart, our need to be born again, as Jesus says in John chapter 3. And what I want you to think about is that I think the result of this is that sometimes we can come to think of salvation as sort of an intellectual process we go through rather than an act of resurrection. And we can even come to think of it as something we do, that that a person sort of comes to understand that they're a sinner, and they come to understand their need of Christ, and through this then, they're saved. Brothers and sisters, of course, we need to understand those things, and God brings us to understand those things. But brothers and sisters, we need to understand salvation as a resurrection act of God. You see, sometimes the result of this is that we can come to think that that anyone who has some sort of intellectual knowledge of what Christ has done is saved. We can come to think of people almost as if they're partly saved because they're sort of coming to understand these things about Jesus Christ. Well, well, maybe they're saved. Maybe they're halfway saved or, or maybe they're a quarter saved. And we can lose our sense of the stark difference that Scripture presents between those who are saved and those who are unsaved. You see, we can talk about people sometimes almost as if they have a foot in the kingdom. Well, I think he's got his foot in the kingdom of God. And it's getting even better, I think, now after a few months, I think he's got his hand in the kingdom of God too, right? Brothers and sisters, when we start thinking that way, what I hope you understand is that is utter nonsense. You cannot be half regenerated. You either have a new heart or you don't have a new heart. You have either been raised with Christ or you are still dead in your sins. You are either born again or you are not born again. You can't be half dead and half alive. You can't have half a new heart and half a dead heart. You are either regenerated by Jesus and have been given life. A resurrection has taken place in you or you are still dead in your sins. You can't have part of you in the kingdom of God and part of you out of the kingdom of God. And this should really be a warning to all of us that if Christ has not raised you to life, if Christ has not given you this new heart, then it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how good you try to be. You are not in the kingdom of God, and you are still under the wrath of God because you are still dead in your sins. And brothers and sisters, if this is true of you, or if you are even thinking that this could be true of you, what you need to do, and I pray you will hear this this morning, is to ask Jesus to take away your heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh. Only he can do this. 
And I want to speak just for a second here specifically to the young people in our congregation, teenagers, young adults. I hope you will hear me this morning. God has blessed you in so many ways. Many of you have grown up in the church. You have grown up in Christian families. You have heard the word of God since you were young. God has included you in his covenant and in the body of Christ. But I hope you will hear me when I say this, that those things alone cannot save you. I think the temptation we have as kids growing up in the church or people that have been in the church a long time, we don't think we have the same sort of rebellious heart as people in the world. Your heart is as corrupt as anybody else's. Since you grew up in the church, it doesn't mean your heart is not wicked and turned against God. God has blessed you in so many ways, and you should thank him all your days. But if God has not done this resurrection in you, you are still dead in your sins. And the same thing applies to you. If you think that this may be true of you, that God has, has, this has not happened to you, you need to ask Jesus to do this for you, and he will do it. He will do it. He is able to do it. And it will be evident to everyone. You see, brothers and sisters, this is what we also need to understand, that if Christ gives a person a new heart like this, it will be seen. Everybody will realize it. It will be evident. Think about it. You can't take a corpse and bring it to life and nobody notices. You can't take a dead body that's lying on the ground and it comes to life and nobody notices. We need to realize this more in the church. We need to regain a sense of this doctrine of regeneration. You have to have a new heart. You have to be resurrected to enter the kingdom of God. And this is why Jesus set his face to Jerusalem in Mark chapter 9. This is why he began to follow this path that would lead to his own death and resurrection, a path that the disciples simply could not understand. It was to raise dead sinners like you and me to life. It was to take away our heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. And I hope you understand that apart from Jesus, you will perish. You will perish in your sins. You will perish eternally in hell under the judgment of God in torments, brothers and sisters, that we cannot even imagine. For you cannot provide for yourself a new heart and a new righteousness and the holiness that you need. And without these things, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus made it clear, unless a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone turn to it and enter it. Unless a man is born of the spirit, Jesus said, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is why the message of Jesus' death and resurrection is so important. It's why what Jesus tells his disciples here in Mark chapter 9 is such good news, even though they didn't understand it. It's because Jesus provides all of this for us. He comes to solve all of our problems. He comes to meet all of his needs, our needs, by giving himself for us so that we could be made right with God. And Jesus does this not because we deserve it, not because of anything in us, not because his arm was twisted, not because he had to do it, but because it was the plan of God rooted in the love of God and because it was the only way that we could be saved. Brothers and sisters, as I close this morning, think again about these words that Jesus says to his disciples in Mark chapter 9. Think about what Jesus came to do for you. And think about the love of God the Father who would allow his son to follow this path for us. Jesus says this, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, 
After three days, he will rise. Brothers and sisters, the disciples didn't understand this. It didn't make any sense to them. But the question I leave you with this morning is this. Does it make sense to you? Do you understand it? Do you understand the significance of this? Do you understand your need of this? That you would die in your sins apart from the work of Jesus Christ for you? And have you come to Jesus? Have you asked him to give you this new heart, to do this resurrection in you, so that you can enter the kingdom of God? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we marvel at your plan of salvation rooted in your own goodness and love for us, a sinful and rebellious people. Father, we read it in your word, and yet it doesn't even sink in the way it should, that though we were your enemies, you loved us in Christ and sent your own son to suffer in our place, to solve every problem that we have, our need for a new heart, our need for a new righteousness, our need for holiness. This is all provided for us in Jesus because you took that son that you loved and you handed him over to be delivered into the hands of men, to be killed and to rise again. Father, we recognize that we cannot enter the kingdom of God without this work in us. We have to have this new heart. We have to have this new righteousness. We have to have perfect holiness. We can't produce any of this. And we will die in our sins apart from this. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who does not have this new heart, who has not experienced this resurrection, that you would lead them to cry out to you for this. And that you would do what only you can do through the work of Jesus Christ. That you would give this new heart to dead sinners like us. And Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us. The words are printed near the back of your bulletin.
Well, I say this to those who are following along with us at home. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The rest of you may be seated. <clears throat> 